Welcome to another pint with Shawnee B uh, coming to you from London. I have a guest. Sometimes on this show, I have plenty of time to research my guests, but these are the ones I prefer. I've just met this guy I'm about to talk to not 20 minutes ago, and he is a Renaissance kind of guy, a musician. He, he plays harmonica for a brilliant band called the Alabama Three. He's also the UK's only specialist desk math mask artist we will discuss what that is i'm welcoming to the podcast nick reynolds hello sir how you doing what tell me a little bit about why you're a death mask specialist let's start there we'll come to your music later okay well a death mask basically is a sculpture of a dead person that's created from taking a mold directly from the subject's face this is a tradition that's been going on for thousands of years, but I suppose the golden age of death mask was in Victorian times. Death levels were very, very, very high. The Victorians, their way of coping with this is they kind of ended up embracing death. So to them, death masks sort of represented the person in a sort of a romantic, eternal sort of sleep. If you look at Victorian graveyards, you've only mm. got to see that with all the kind of funerary sculptures and they've got yeah. weeping angels and... But everyone's in a sort of like a state of foreverness. They believe that to get the essence of the person, which was very important, is that sometimes the, the guy would come around and do the death mask before the doctor would even come around and give the death certificate. <laughs> because within a few hours, the muscles totally relax and certain features or expressions kind of dissolve, if you like. Unfortunately, these days, by the time they get in touch with me, they would have had to go to the morgue. You know, they would have had an autopsy generally, or at least they would have been embalmed. By that time, obviously, the bone structure and everything is still intact. Areas like the jowls and everything can kind of move down and sort of slightly distort the features on the face. Um, so, unfortunately, I don't get to them straight away. It could be a week or two. But what I do, I try to counterbalance the fact that they have been laying down for a little bit. And I, I cast them in wax and then um, I kind of do a little bit of a nip and tuck on them. And that would be so a they're deep, not frowning. So they're not, yeah, so they're not frowning. But they, they still end up with a bit of a frown. I mean, a good yeah. example, if you look at um, Beethoven's death mask, got a real sort of hangdog expression, and that's because of the, the gravity. He was a grumpy fucker anyway. But yeah, like, uh, yeah, yeah, Death yeah, as a post, yeah. There you go, yeah. <laughs> well, he, 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 in fact, it's very interesting. There is a life cast of, of him taken six, seven months before he died. And it's fascinating the difference in sort of like how he deteriorated just in six or seven months. Yeah. But yeah, he looked pretty grumpy in his life mask and he looked even grumpier in the death mask. So unfortunately, I don't get to them that quick, which means there's a certain a bit of work I've got to put into, into them to make them look. Because basically, if someone wants a death mask, they want the person as, as they've died and they look like they're sleeping more or less. You get to them a week or two weeks later, it's yeah. a dead person. Like, you're the first person I've ever met who's done this. That's why I'm starting here, because it's most fascinating to me. But, you, like, who wants a death mask now? Do you get? Do you have deathmasks.com? Or do you, like, well, my um, dad was a great guy. Can you do a death mask for me? Well, that's generally it, yeah. It, it's um, the majority of them, I, I would say, tend to be popular figures. And, and that's an old, that's an old tradition. Ones? Yeah, I've, I've done quite a few famous people. I did Ken Russell, the film director, Peter O'Toole. So where's his uh, death mask now, for example? Kate, his daughter, has got okay. it in um, Galway. Okay. Where, yeah, yeah. Where, where he had a house. People don't think of doing... Like, there's so many things you have to do to bury a parent or a person that you love. What makes a person think of, oh, wait, before we go, I want to call in 
Nick and get a death mask on there? It depends on the, on the person. The tradition of death masks really came about in order to uh, produce post-mortem sculptures. So someone famous would die and they'd say, oh, well, we've got to make a monument right. or a sculpture okay. of them. How are we going to do this? They the didn't have right. photography. So what they would do is they would make a death mask and that would be oh. the sculptor's model. Basically, they weren't really considered much value in themselves until Napoleon died and had his death mask made. And his death mask was kind of revered as an object in itself. Most death masks, if they are actually to be used as a sculpture, they'll have hair added to them and there'll be a little bit of work done on them. Sometimes the eyes will be sculpted open. But with Napoleon's, and it wasn't a particularly good cast either, the ears are missing... Um, and they shaved his head, so it doesn't look like him. In fact, there's a, <laughs> there's a lot of people that contest it is actually his mask anyway. So from that point onwards, people saw the value of a death mask of a famous person. I think about faces. A lot of people believe the face is the seat of the soul, really. And everything, how we react with people, how we talk to people, is all based on information we're getting as we're yeah, looking at true. their face. I mean, faces... You know, as you're a baby, the one thing that you learn to fixate on, first of all, are faces. And yeah. we're so tuned into faces. This is why we can look at clouds and see faces. It's called pareidolia. We're programmed into that kind of right. thing. You can look at a death mask of someone and every wrinkle is a repository for countless memories. To me, I think everyone should get a death mask done because yeah. it, it, it's their last will and testament of themselves as a sort of as a human shape and form. Uh, you can have a picture of someone in a room, but it, it's 2D, it's flat, it's not tactile, it doesn't have any weight, it doesn't occupy any space. Death masks do, and it allows the bereaved to a certain degree to kind of get over the grieving process. I think the first do you losing paint them, someone. By the way? No. They're just white, right? No, no, they're, they're, they're bronze. They look very classical because it used to be purely for the elite. They used to have these very lengthy funeral rites where when the king died, they would have him sort of on show for up to a month yeah. sometimes. And of course, by this time, you'd have a bit of a smelly king. As time went by and all the religious rites and all the paraphernalia and ceremony and pomp that went with the death of the sovereign got longer and longer and longer, they realised they, they had a real problem. So what they would do is they would take a death mask in wax and they would make it look like the real person. You know, use like hair from a dog, this, that, for the eyebrows and stuff, soften the features, lay dress it up, and that would lay in state. Yeah, yeah. While the king had already been buried, and people thought that this effigy was the real deal. And you can see them. Well, my old man is a very famous Irish ventriloquist. Oh, okay. And he made his own dummies. <laughs> so you didn't know that. No, I didn't. <laughs> and he made his own dummies on a kind of a death mask, papier mache now. Yeah. But like ventriloquist dummies' faces get started off in a similar way where you take a kind of a. His most famous dummy was an Irish storyteller, an old Shanachie. And he got an old Irish poet and used that as O'Connor and used that face to make his own. Well, he had a life mask of the poet. Or, no, he, he, or he, he just had based to make it on one. It. He yeah, based yeah, yeah. It so he, he's making it, a kind of a, a, a dummy out of papier mache and then yeah. he has to put in the, the jaw thing and all that kind of So he's not a million, yeah, million yeah, miles away. Uh, yeah, but you know what? I mean, people say to me that death masks, they think they're kind of creepy and spooky, but I think ventriloquist dummies well, are a hundred yeah, times yeah. more spooky. My, I mean, you've seen that. You must have seen that movie, oh, so Magic. Many of them. I know, yeah, no, but yeah, Magic yeah, yeah, is yeah, the brilliant one with, what's the guy? 
Hopkins. Father Beans with County. Yeah, yeah Anthony yeah, Hopkins. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, no, I mean, my dad. No, but they freak me yeah. out. Clowns, ventriloquist yeah. dummies. What, why is that? Well, you, I mean, you have to go why into a... That? So you have to go in pretty soon after a bereavement in an ideal sense yeah. with and say don't mind me i'm just you know and yeah you they give me a, they give me a bodies. call tell me where he is and i go down the morgue how much does it cost to get a death mask on now generally speaking i do them in um sort of like what they call cold cast bronze and i, I charge sort of anywhere between two and two and a half grand and how many would you do a year um, it varies. I Roughly, mean, I, I think, well, it's sometimes I've done 10, sometimes okay. I've only done three. And is it a dying business, excuse me? <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's, it's been a dying art for a long time. <laughs> but you're the only guy, right? You're, you're the main specialist in the UK, doesn't this? Yeah, I mean, there are people that have done it because they've been asked to, but yeah. they don't have a business based around it. And I, I lecture on the subject as well. So it, it's kind of something that I'm sort of like quite deeply into. Do you get many character. people going, hi, uh, I'm about to die, will you do a face mask for me? Do you get people like... One, I've had one person who was an Alabama 3 fan who, who um, came to a gig and uh, he couldn't get backstage because he was in a wheelchair, I think, but his girlfriend got backstage and said to me, oh, you know, my husband's out in the front, he's dying of cancer and he wants a death mask done. And I said, well, to be honest, if he's still alive, it'd be better that I do him alive. Because ah. then when you're looking at him, he's alive. There's an inherent sadness, no matter how beautiful they might be. That The mask, you know, you're looking at it and it's still a constant reminder that, that, that they're not with you. You know, I would much rather do people alive before they die, to be yeah. quite honest. I'd be up for um, But well, there you go. We can We're not do famous it. enough. We'll, do, it. we'll yeah. do a deal. So, but before we finish on the death mask, yeah. you also did Malcolm McLaren. Yep, I did Malcolm McLaren. I, um, his head's in bronze on his gravestone at Highgate Cemetery. Every time I go down there, because my dad's head is there as well, and I did my dad, and he's on the same main stretch as Malcolm. So, you know, I go and see my dad, and then I walk down the road and go and check Malcolm out. And um, people leave safety pins <laughs> and, you know, and razors and, yeah. and little things like that. Someone sprayed across it in bright pink one day, no future. The people that, that run Highgate Trust rang up Joe Corey, Malcolm's his dad, said, I'm really sorry, but um, someone no, sprayed graffiti, you know, <laughs> and he went, cool, it's great, it's in the spirit <laughs> exactly, of things. Exactly. Leave it there. But they didn't want to leave it there. because. <laughs> and then the other day they rang me up and said, someone's just thrown green paint all over it. You'd love it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I would just say, he'd be laughing. He said, it's still attention. He's still in the news, you know. Anyway, yeah, well, we've death masks, enough we've, of death masks. We've, we've disappeared down this rabbit hole of death masks only because I've never met anyone who's done this before and it's intriguing that it's still a thing. And I, I love the elemental issue of it. How does a guy end up being a musician at death mask? Tell me a little bit about where you were born and, and how you grew up. Um, oh, great. Oh, bloody hell. Oh, well, I was born in Kensington in 1962. What was uh, it like living there then? That was... Well, I don't, a, I, I don't remember, do uh, I? Grow, no, when you were growing up, though, was it, were, was it a happy I, well, childhood? Uh, you don't know about my background. You don't know about I my childhood. I told you, I just fucking uh, met you 20 minutes right, ago. Okay, well, when I was one years old, my dad committed the great train robbery, and from that moment on, we was on the run for five years. Um, See what happens on a point with Johnny Peters, get there a you go, son uh, of a train so, robber. So, um, so he was one of the Ronnie Briggs' gang and all that? Uh, well, he was the gang. My dad yeah. was Bruce Reynolds. He was the guy who planned it. Okay. And um, Ronnie Biggs was an old, old friend of his um, that they'd met together in Borstal. I mean, <laughs> we could talk just an hour about my dad and, yeah. and Ronnie Biggs and me and my dad hanging out in Brazil with him. 
Right, so okay. so that broke. My dad lay low for about eight months, and then did you have loads of the cash country. then? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But basically, yeah. I mean, he was an instant millionaire, you yeah. could say. And uh, <laughs> so I grew up in Mexico. Well, over five years, I lived in Mexico, Canada, uh, France. And, um, then he came back to England to do another job and got arrested. So, right. so I then got sent to boarding school. So, what at what age were you when you realised you were on the run? Uh, we weren't on the run in my mind see because my dad was constantly changing his name had different identities he would change the way he looked so he would put on three or four stones shave his head grow a moustache wear a monocle and be, wear a monocle. be and be Keith Clement Muller a German businessman and um Oh, he, he could fake his way through it. But in those days, you know, in the 60s, most people weren't very worldly. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. An Englishman's idea of going on holiday was going to Margate. Yeah. You know, you know, and, and now were you an only child? Yeah, I was an only child. Oh, there's so a, many only children. I was, a, I was an only child, yeah, yeah. I know. But so, um, they have the best life, don't they? So we were constantly moving around. And um, I think at some point I wondered why we never seemed to stay in one place. But we lived, I mean, when we were in Mexico, my dad bought the franchise for Dunhills. This is what a nutter he was. I mean, <laughs> at this time, he was. it was the very first time Telstar had gone up. Um, and they were trying to think of all new, wonderful things that they could beam, you know, using this bit of technology. Yeah. And then Interpol had this bright idea. They said, why don't we all get together and put the world's most wanted list of the 10 ah. most wanted people? And my dad was one of those 10. So it so happened that when... <laughs> He was broadcast and it was on telly in Mexico. It was like on a Sunday morning at a time when everyone had been sleeping off a heavy session on Saturday. You know, yeah. So he, he was quite confident um, that no one had <laughs> seen this. Have you seen this man? Because he was quite pro- high profile in Mexico, sort of living with the top 5%. In fact, the apartment we lived in was rented off the, the president of the Bank of Mexico. <laughs> so when he bought the franchise to Dunhills, you know, they said, we've got to do some press and everything like that. So I had a picture of him in the airport, stood on the, uh, the ladder coming out of the plane. And he's standing there, with, you know, in his suit and tie and his briefcase and glasses, looking very much like Alan Wicker. And sort of like the, the headline was like, you know, man from England comes to bring Dunhills to Mexico. Yeah, and that's yeah. that's just fucking insane. Mental. I know. That's you, just insane. Yeah. You know. I think he'd run a garden patch somewhere and just have money. In the I, I think his attitude was sort of like, you know, just hiding in plain sight. You can almost be so obvious. When did he die? He died uh, four years ago. Okay, so you, you got the whole story from him. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I've written a couple of books on it um, with him. We'll put them on the podcast uh, if anyone wants to. uh, Yeah, and and I'm in the the process at the moment because he wrote a book called Autobiography of a Thief. Does what it says in the tin. Yeah, but it got it got a lot of good reviews because um, most villains, when they write their books, they tend to embellish things and dig them up a little yeah. bit. Yeah, you know, or even there'll be certain stories that it wasn't them, it was someone else who's dead now, and they'll claim, I'll yeah, say, yeah, oh, yeah. I did that. My dad's biography was very, very different in as much as you got all the excitement and the thrill of being naughty, but then you had the whole... <laughs> grueling payout for what you've done it's the roller coaster but it's also you know the price that you pay for so living that do, kind of he, life he did get caught eventually oh sorry, shit, I'm sorry, yeah yeah well no yeah yeah he came back to do another job and he got nicked in Torquay and he got 25 years what would make him come back to do another job just ran out of money 
Well, yeah, we see, well, it, part of it sounds like the thriller. Well, when he was, we were living the high life in Mexico, and Buster Edwards, who was another one of the train robbers, it was Phil Collins' character in the movie, yeah, who wasn't doing too well. He was finding it kind of hard to get by with him and his wife June and their daughter Nicolette. So he kind of got in touch with my dad and said, "Can we come out and stay with you? Because I'm at my wit's end here, sort of thing." maybe thinking about giving myself up. I can't maintain this life on the run. He yeah. wasn't geared up for it. So he came to Mexico, and after a while, even that, it didn't suit him. So he decided that he would do a deal for a lesser sentence and came back to England. Unfortunately, it was discovered, or they worked out, that where he'd been and uh, that he must have been with my dad. I think they found a photograph or something or other. And my dad realised that the game was up, so he had to do a runner. But not only that, his cover was slightly blown because he was a diamond geezer buster. But the thing about my dad, he could pretend to be anybody. I mean, he you know he used to tell people he was the youngest major in the British Army, and he'd get away with it. He could put on the accents and and everything. Buster was your lovable rogue. And when he came out to join my dad so in Mexico, the kind of people my dad was hanging out with. They couldn't kind of work out why would this guy who's pertaining to be this character be hanging out with, with a kind of Jack the Lad sort of, <laughs> ca- you know. And uh, so I so think your dad was cracked. right. There yeah. was cracks in my dad's uh, sort of the, the image that he put out over there. And then, of course, once Buster did give himself up, um, I think my dad got word that they were aware of where he was. So that's when we moved to Canada. But did you know as a teenager? Well, I wasn't a teenager, was I? It was this was from the age of one to seven. Right. Well, yeah, I was just about seven when he was arrested. So about five okay, and a half years right. he was so on the run. But you did say to me, you know, I, I never thought we was on the run, but we we're always moving around. And so I thought, because of all my dad's different identities, passports. And he'd say to me, this is your name now, you know, and I'd have different names. And if you get stopped by the police, we ever get separated, this is what you say. And at one point, I remember going through the airport and as the guy's looking at my dad and looking at his passport and looking up and mm, looking up and down, you know, there's that kind of moment. For some reason, and I was, what, three or four, I blur out, Daddy, why did you shave off your moustache? <laughs> but anyway, I thought, that maybe that my dad was a spy or something like okay, that. Okay, yeah, yeah. And, and it was an exciting <laughs> life. And I, I never saw him anxious or worried. Yeah. It wasn't like he was looking over his yeah. shoulder, which obviously he was. He yeah. must have been to a degree. He was a very confident but, man, was he? Yeah, but my mum, you know, they were just having one big party all the yeah. time, basically. And so I never picked up on any fear or anything like that. Even to the point when he got arrested, I opened the door and then, it was sort of like out of the Keystone Cops, all these you know, police just came steaming in, you know. And even then, I wasn't worried. I thought it was like a, something like the spy came out uh, in from the cold, you yeah, know. Yeah. They, they'd been rescued, yeah. didn't have to run anymore. And then I saw my mum crying, and then I thought, hold on a minute. So it's not, that doesn't quite work right. Well, you know, why is she not? You know, and then it was, my dad said he's been a naughty boy and he's going to got to go away for a while, you know. And I suppose that was like, really? And it only really, only really dawned on me the seriousness of it when I got to visit him in prison for the first time. And he was literally in the centre of a maze in a glass cube. It took more than half an hour to get to him through all the different levels, doors, and all I can remember is the sound of the screw, that's the, the prison warder, mm. his, his shoes, and they all had those blakies in those little metal bits, yeah, does, you know, yeah. which just echoed yeah. in these concrete hallways yeah. and clunk, clunk, these big bunch of keys, jangle, jangle, clunk, clunk through one door, then another. And you're just going through this system. It seems to take forever. 
and ever and ever going round and round and round and round and round until finally you get in this little room and there he was in a bloody glass box. Was he in solitary, yeah? Well, this was like the visiting oh, room. Oh, the visiting room, and, right, right. And he was in like a little glass box sort of thing and uh, couldn't touch him and or anything did he like that. So he got 25 years and he ended up doing um, 10 and a half. Uh, he, he got parole. But if you add that together with all the other bits of time he'd done, including Borstal, he's spent 21 years of his life incarcerated. Really? So what effect do you think that had on you growing up? Just it, made, it, 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 made, it made me, made me realise that it's not fucking worth nicking anything. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what it, I, I like my liberty too much. So I just suddenly thought there's absolutely no way. When I joined the Navy. No, what sort I, of a kid were you? Were you, the, were you a fighter? Were you funny? Were you... I was a bit of a fucking mental case, I think, really. Um, <laughs> I'm not surprised. I was a loner. I had this big, 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 big secret. You, you couldn't know, tell anyone. Couldn't tell anyone. I, my mum had changed my name when I was at school, so nobody knew any anything about that. Obviously, I came from a world, and because of the people that my dad knew, you know, they say, this is Uncle Fred, he's killed people, and this is so-and-so, you know, and, yeah. uh, and there I am at this very, very posh boarding school in Sussex. Um, I had a kind of attitude. It, it was sort of like a double-edged sword, really, in, in, in as much as I thought, you know, I could do what I want, really, if you knew my background. This is my mind of thinking yeah. as a child, you know, in my mind, obviously, I thought my dad was bloody Superman. You felt like you were not like other boys. Yeah, I did. And I was always getting in trouble, always, always. Um, I hated authority. So I constantly questioned it. I probably got caned more than anybody else. Well, I stabbed the Prince of Sierra Leone, but he did smash me over the head with a with a lump of wood. I was eight years old then or something. Yeah. I hated being at boarding school. All of a sudden, you know, I've been with my dad. There's that old Jesuit saying, you know, give me a boy for yeah. seven years, I'll show you the man. So I'd been with him practically, you know, every day through this massive adventure. I'd spent more time with him in those yeah. years than most dads get to spend with their kids their whole bloody life. Yeah, yeah. And to suddenly live in that jet set life, to suddenly he's in prison, my mum's hitting the bottle in tears and I'm sent aboard in school. It yeah. was catastrophic. And I took it out on figures of authority because they were the people. Were you bullied at school? They were the people. No, no. You're the a other way. I was a psycho. I hate bullies, you see. That's one yeah. thing. I hate authority. I hate bullies. Yeah. So at school I would stick up. I would do ridiculous things which made people just think, just leave him alone. He's a bit of a nut job. If a bully did try something, I would do something ridiculous like stab him in the forehead with a compass okay. and they would just go, leave the guy alone. He's right. not He's not. Were you, br- were you bright? Yeah, I was. It kind of fucked me up, actually. They did this experimental thing. It was something akin to like an 11 plus, I, I imagine. And they put people that got a certain score, regardless of their age into this class and I found myself with kids like two or three years older than me. Before that I'd been sort of top in maths, art and English but when I got moved into this other little experimental thing I hated it and I couldn't cope not being sort of up near the top sort of thing so I went to see the headmaster in tears you know and so I was finding it very very hard struggling within this format. And he said to me, would you rather be a, a big fish in a little pond or a little fish in a big pond? I said, I want to be a big fish in a little pond. And that was it. And, and, and they moved me back. But that was a boarding school. Interesting. And then I moved from the boarding school. Um, I got a scholarship to uh, Emmanuel School, very well-respected school in uh, 
I think we're the only people to have beaten Oxford at rowing, actually, okay. I think, other than Cambridge. Other than Cambridge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we had our rowing club at Putney on the Thames. What were you studying? Sorry? No, but this, 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 I'm still at school. That's yeah. from the age of 13. So I was at boarding school from the now age of 8. And when did music eight. come into your life? My mum and dad always had music. They'd be dancing in the living room, listening to Frank Sinatra, this, that. My dad was mad about jazz. And my mum loved music. And, you know, it would take five or six hours to go visit him sometimes, you know, driving. So my mum would have a big Super 8, yeah, not Super them, yeah. 8, what do no, they, they call were, them? They eight were like tracks. cartridges, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, those eight yeah, track yeah, things. Yeah. Just put them in. And just you were a posh if you had them. Forever. <laughs> yeah. oh, we, had, we had money. We had cassettes that used to we had, dangle themselves up. And we, 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 we did have money yeah, we did then. Have money, yeah. We did have money then. So we're going to come back to your chronological. Chronology. Chronological. But I want to try and punctuate the chat with some of your music. And yeah, the music. music. Right. So introduce one of uh, your first uh, tracks that we're going to play and tell me a bit about it. God bloody hell. You sp- I know, it's you, you sprung, sprung that on me. Yeah, I'll your best one. You Start off with an easy one. You can't put that on me. We've done 18 albums. All right, well, pick your favourite. <laughs> your favourite. I mean, you play harmonica, so which is the king harmonica track of Alabama 3? Let's start with oh, that. Bloody hell. There's nine people in Alabama 3, so right. generally no one gets a bloody solo. You're lucky if you get a couple of notes in on a track sometimes, you know, but this is... And the lead singer, Larry Love, he doesn't like anyone like stealing his shine. So <laughs> everyone gets really mixed into this big kind of soup with him sat on the top of it. But this particular track, there's a, there's a lot of uh, harmonic on it. It's a song that was written in the 60s about my dad. Have you seen Butch Richard Reynolds? It was written by a folk singer. Dad was talking to um, lead singer Larry Love and, you know, and he was saying, like, hey, Bruce, we're doing this album. Yeah, it's called Outlaw and it's all about... How in America, they've got all these outlaws that they kind of, it's part of their mythology. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and yeah. uh, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what my dad threw in. Oh, but you do realise there was a song written about me in the 60s and Larry said, perfect, you know, find it and we'll redo it. So that's one of them and it's got quite a lot of harmonica on it, which Here we is go. quite rare. This is Alabama 3. <laughs> Yeah. 
bags full of money was stolen by the team. But someone left his fingerprints and the guys were soon on charge. But they'd only caught the muscle cause the brains were still at large. Set my whole firm free. By August 64, old Charlie Wilson left the sale. By late in 65, Rob Big said that he owes as well. Have you seen Bruce Richard Reynolds? He's a mastermind, you know. Just walking through the walls of jails and letting his firm go. Have you seen Bruce Richard Reynolds by Alabama 3? You said there were nine people in Alabama 3. Why yeah. are they called Alabama 3? That's been intriguing me. Um, you know, Guilford 4, Burnham yeah. 6. You know all about Paddy Hill and Jerry Conner, yeah, yeah, don't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. Who are good friends of ours, you know, rest in peace, Jerry. And it was really because of them. Um, but there was a case in Alabama called the Alabama 3, and it was uh, two black kids and a white kid, or two white kids and a black kid, I can't remember. Um, and they got accused of uh, rape and they got done by a lynch mob and they were known as the Alabama Three. So yeah. and the thing is, Alabama Three is a very a political band anyway. So it's a kind of metaphor, reference to the fact that we stand for wrongdoings, miscarriages of justice, which is how we got involved with the miscarriage of justice, which Paddy Hill was one of the Birmingham Six yeah. he used to run. We sing about America through a glass eye darkly, if you like, but there's a lot of satire in yeah. what we do, which is why when we went to America... Um, on the back of Woke Up This Morning. The booked us in the stadiums and you've got all these guys dressed up in mafia suits. Well, Alabama 3 all look like a bunch of faggy cowboys, you know, yeah. <laughs> on, on, on smack. Yeah. yeah, 
taken the Which piss. The redneck, no, they didn't like it. They yeah. thought we we're going to walk out in gangster suits. They didn't yeah. realise that. But see, America's. There's no irony. I'm, I'm not going to sarcasm and uh, irony. They're not. Gonna, yeah, I'm not going to start slagging Americans off. I could start all I night. There for nine yeah, years. I, I'll slag do, it. Well, do you know what I mean? Well, I've spent a lot of time out there. And I, I, I won't go on about their general IQ level. But the yeah. thing is, is uh, they. If they'd done their research, they would have realised that woke up this morning, get yourself a gun, is not a gangster fucking anthem. Yeah. It's actually about a woman called Sarah Thornton who got so sick of getting the shit kicked out of her by a husband policeman that one day in self-defence, she took his gun and shot him. I did not know that. So it's about up. female empowerment, you yeah. know. Most people just know it as a soprano song. <laughs> That's it, get, get yourself a gun. I mean, even Naz sampled it, you know, yeah, get yeah, yourself yeah. a gun. It's like, no, that's not what it's about. It's not what we're about. Um, Do we, co- we, we come back to the whole music bit because I want to just finish off on the school, the college, and what, what the happened? The beatings, then? the yeah, canings. The canings, yeah. What, what, what did, you get that? You, did you get that in Ireland? I actually. Oh, and the other thing, yeah, especially being in Ireland, the, the priest that we had there as well, because we had our own church there, and he got slung out for noncing. Obviously, yeah. it was a boarding school back in those days. There was all sorts of stuff going on, and uh, and you've got the big scandal with well, the I, Catholic I was Church flying, in I was, Ireland. I know, I was flying in from New York when I was living over there, coming home for Christmas, and you know the way they have these little. You know corrections, you know in 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 the Wall Street Journal or something like you know we we fucked up on this. Oh yeah, yeah, but really yeah, small. small. I, I've yeah. got one of those when I yeah. sued Piers Morgan. Yeah. that's another yeah. story. <laughs> well, we talked about that. Maybe, maybe in that. But you know, um, there was a correction that says our article about paedophilia and the priesthood in Ireland incorrectly said. Hundreds of thousands of children were affected. It was, in fact, tens of thousands. Oh, okay. What, what's <laughs> in a zero? population of three million. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, it was pretty serious. Yeah. No, I, I, and again, you grow. I grew up with it. I didn't. I was in an Opus Day school, uh, who are you know uh, dodgy, but I didn't have any nonsing, as you would put it, going yeah. on. But there was. You like, weren't aware I, I know, of it. Well, you, 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 you were never nonced. No, I'm surprised there wasn't. If someone said to me there was, I go, yeah, I'm not surprised. But I didn't hear of any, to be fair to them. I know four or five, all but mainly boys, by the way. I have this great theory, you might like this, which was, if you think about Ireland in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, there was no such thing as homosexuality. There was no gayness. Yeah. Gay was not a thing. Now, gay was clearly a thing. There were there were men who were gay, but didn't know what gay was, right? Yeah. There was also this thing where you'd, you'd be a kid, you'd go and you'd say, how do you know if you're going to be a priest, father, right? Five or six. Oh, God will send you a sign, my child, and he will, you will know this. That you, and you go, yeah, okay. Well. What's the sign that you fancy boys? So, so my, no, my theory, <laughs> my theory, is that particularly in Ireland, the sign that a boy of fifteen or fourteen or thirteen wants to be in the church is that he's, is that he's not interested in women. Okay, yeah, all right, yeah. And unbeknownst to themselves, the Catholic Church were hoovering up all of the gay men in Ireland to become priests. Okay, I mean, it's a, it's yeah, a fucking it's solid not, it's theory. Not, it's not bad theory, but, and, and it lets the Catholic Church off the hook. Uh, well, it doesn't, I'm surprised no, they don't buy that. not letting So the seminary goes in at 17. He doesn't like women. He's pure. He's not, a, he's not, a, not, he's not like dodgy. He's showering amongst men. He's playing rough and tumble football, running whatever. He's learning about the ways of God. But biologically, the man, the seminarian, is attracted to other men and is around, surrounded by other men. This is, this is actually my theory. Yeah, I haven't yeah, heard no, this. It, it, and so you end up it's got with 10% of priests being 
actively homosexual in the only way they can. They're usually around children. But there's very few priests in Ireland that nonced, I'm going to use your word because I quite like it, girls. But if we we cast the clock back to when Constantine decided, right, for better or worse, my empire is going to collapse unless I adopt this Christianity thing. Yeah came up with all the books and all the texts and thought, you know, what's the thing that we're going to put out as our one book that keeps everyone happy and came up with the Roman Catholic Church, you know, their version of Christianity. The first thing that they did, you know, a lot of people know this, is is a lot of Christian symbols all comes from pagan iconography anyway because they had to say, look, it's the same as what you believe in. It's just a different name. You know, we call it this, but it's all the same, so it doesn't matter, you know. Their culture at the time, Constantine and all his buddies... They weren't gay, but they all had boy lovers. Yeah, yeah. They, they were from a time Ancient when... Greeks, yeah, yeah. yeah, so, you know, you were assigned a boy for, mm. for a certain amount of years, and it was a boy's schooling. You know, wives for children and status, and boys for pleasure. And so you got the people who put the Roman Catholic Church together, including Constantine, the first thing they did was outlaw women. So in, in all of pagan mythology, the, the you know, the feminine is up there with it's the masculine. King, yeah. You know, they're, they're balanced. Yeah. Earth was a mother. The sky, the heavens was yeah. the male. They completely obliterated the feminine aspect. They invented the whole thing about Adam being cast out of the Garden of Eden because of her yeah. as tempting. Invented the whole thing about it's women's guilt because what they've done was they get periods. So obviously that's going to come through all the so way through speak. the church anyway, that women are, yeah, that, that women are unclean or they're not good for man and so they're more likely to stick to each other i mean i think i think this is something they created that goes back to that but it also ties up with what you know to a degree anyway religion never talk about religion well no we do on this podcast so anyway you're in college uh you're no you're not you're in school did you go and you left and then what happened then i left school uh, all my mates where I was living, I was living in Streatham then, and uh, most of them were in gangs and kind of getting locked up left, right and centre, and I just thought, this isn't for me, what am I going to do? And so I joined the Navy. What age were you when you joined the Navy? 17. Right. Where did you go? Falklands? Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> Everything was good up to the Falklands. I mean, I've been, I must have been to America about a dozen times before that, all over Europe, the Antilles, the West Indies. Did you enjoy it? I, well, I loved it up until um, because obviously I, I'd always I've always got ants in my pants because of my dad I guess moving around yeah. all the time so I enjoyed the navy at first until I went down the Falklands you know and I, I didn't sign up to be a hero or to go to war I just thought it's a way to get an education and see the world mm. and to get out of the shithole that I was living in in London at the time. Mm. Um, by then, you know, my dad was still in prison. My mum had divorced my dad. She'd had a series of nervous breakdowns and had a severe drink problem. I couldn't stand the guy. Um, and I just thought, you know, I've just got to get out of this scenario. The guy she was with after Yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, very, very, very nasty, violent man. And so I just thought, right, we've got to get out of this, get out of the scene. It was also... When, Visit my dad in prison for 10 years. We had all these plans of what we were going to do when he came out. And I think I had a bit of a panic thinking, you know, that that had kept me going all of those years, thinking everything will be all right. When my dad comes out of prison, everything's going to be fine. Mm. We can start up again. And that that enabled me to go through a lot of very difficult kind of situations growing up. 
Um, and then I realised I'd kind of put him on a bit of a pedestal and thought, what what happens if when he comes out, we just put together and it doesn't work out? And I think I kind of panicked about that a little bit. I thought, well, how can I give us a bit of time? So ironically, as he came out of prison, I voluntarily put myself in one in, in, yeah. in the ship. But it worked because it's the year I did my training, I still got to see him every weekend and uh, he would come down to Portsmouth. And then I got to travel a lot as well, you know. So it, it, it was good until I went down to the Falklands. And then, so we're talking like uh, February, March 82, roughly, Falklands War, right? Yeah. Tell me what it was like. It was shit. It was horrible. I mean, the weather conditions were one thing. I mean, I'm, I'm unbelievable weather con- conditions. Did you feel you were genuinely in a war? Because it was like over here, like you, you had the gotcha Belgrano thing. And what age was I? I was 14 when yeah. that happened. And, I, you know, it was being Irish... We used to go around calling it Las Malvinas and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, you know, we have issues, as you know. But You, you fucking know. what? Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I'm not afraid to say that. You, you know why I, I say that. <laughs> yeah. But like, it was it was almost like the first, um, <laughs> I'm not going to say, it was a, the first tabloid war. It was. It was a tabloid war. Well, it wasn't. War. It wasn't Vietnam. Not for you there. Vietnam was, well, wasn't I it? Yeah. It was a tabloid war. There was no like, whatever. Oh, it was total jingoistic. Yeah. You know, up your junta. Up your junta, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and like gotcha. That. And, you know, whatever, a few hundred sailors died in the yeah. Belgrade. I mean, were, were you? Yeah, they did. Well, no, because I mean, the thing was, is I was on the flagship. I was on the Hermes. So twice a day, we were, they, Argentine, the Argentinians threw everything they had at us. If they sunk us, it was game over. Six o'clock every day, every night, we got bombed. Hit the deck, hit the deck. I was up on the was radar an aircraft deck. carrier? Yeah, Hermes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So your guys would scramble and there'd just be a dogfight in the air and hope they wouldn't fucking sink your ship? Yeah, basically, yeah. And uh, action stations, action stations. Well, in that, in, that, in that particular time, I was running the TV station. 2,000 people on board. That's a lot of TV sets. 2,000 people on board? Yeah. I was looking after the BBC crew and the ITN crew, which was Brian Hanrahan and uh, Nicholson. Mike Nicholson? Yeah, Mike Nicholson. They had one cameraman with him, a guy called Bernard Hesketh. He was a great guy. He'd been a veteran. He'd filmed 140 wars, this guy. So they shared one cameraman with him, and every morning they get kitted up and they go off and do their little bit of filming, and then it gets sent to me. I'd have a quick look at it, make sure it was all right. Then I'd send it back, you know, I'd arrange a helicopter and they would ferry it by hopping from other ships to ships to ships and finally it would get onto a boat going back to Ascension Isle or whatever and then it would get back to England. And then we'd see it a few weeks later once it had been edited. I mean, that's another story. Once I saw the power of spin, yeah. it just made me remember what my dad said, you know, that the first casualty of war is the truth. The truth yeah. and, that, and that is when I, I, I really lost interest in the Navy and I realised it was all absolute bollocks really. But uh, I was up on the radar deck when because um, Mackenzie was, Mackenzie was in the Sun newspaper in that book up your junta. He had he had a, uh, a, a reporters on the ground in Buenos Aires who were filing reports that were the truth, and he was just putting them in the bin and writing fucking cartoon style. Headlines. Yeah, but there's a lot. Of, obviously, the thing is, is that there was stuff they couldn't put out. You know, like when okay, when, yeah. when H got killed, you know, the Argies waved the white flag, and H, the head of two para got up to go and, you know, accept their... He got shot on the way. Yeah, and then fucking Sniper did him. Yeah. So after that, 
powers went mad and uh, they were like slicing off ears and everything, keeping yeah. them as souvenirs and body parts and things. And obviously that was crazy. But when you're in the state of war, you're in the state of war, you know. Um, Did you but feel it was what, futile while you were there? Or? Well, no, it was, it, it was all about the oil once again, which they still haven't got up yet. But they've now found that there's there's more oil on, on land there than we've got all around in the North Is Sea. Right? Oh, yeah, it was always about the oil. But not only that... When it first kicked off, when the RGs took over South Georgia, which is uh, another little yeah. whaling station, I think 14 Marine Station there or something, and they just steamed in, stuck the Argentine flag up. We had a boat out there, uh, a survey vessel, which reported all these activities going on, and Thatcher was aware of it and was trying to work out what to do, and it was the warming stuff. And he turned around to her and said, you know what? Let's just let this play out a little bit. Because she goes, this is outrageous. Let's go down there and teach them a lesson. And they said, well, no, actually, let's just wait and see how this plays. Because she was losing favour at the time. There's no way she'd have got the next election. He said, we play this right. We can use this to your advantage. And there's an opportunity. And it was deliberately let to escalate. So that she did have a good excuse to yeah. kind of go to town. And, and the whole thing really was, was about her. She wanted to be a sort of bit of a female church. And, if it get, and, and to a degree, it worked. England was... Galvanised, you know. Totally a great word. It was yeah. not long after the hunger strike situation in Northern Ireland, right? Which was yeah. a real failure for her. For the first time, she got the South galvanized to uh, the nationalist south galvanized because she had her famous out 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 speech and bobby sands and all that which was 81 and it did it got her back into power did you feel you were going to die oh yeah many times see the thing on the way down they were all gung-ho yeah bloody argies how dare they you know they're yeah. steam in there whatever then it was all hurrah hurrah you know vulcan bombers we've done the the main runway you know yeah. that's put an end to all of their airplanes well we missed <laughs> it took them one day to fill in the one bomb that did <laughs> so that was a waste of time that yeah. was celebrated you know yeah. and made a big deal of but when the Sheffield got hit that was the thing and I was up on the deck I saw that happen and I saw the people get brought in and the mood on board just that moment was like oh my god what are we doing we're going to fucking die out here this is insane real. going the other side of the planet where we got no backup no support America wouldn't help us at the yeah. time because Politically, it was very delicate for them, America, South America. Most of the world just said, you guys sort that out. Exactly. But it was only when, you know, we could (laughs) prove to the Americans that the the Russians were behind it mainly because they wanted to stick a Russian base, (laughs) you know, and they'd done all sorts of deals with the Argentinians. And, you know, I saw it with my own eyes. They had all the best Arctic Russian gear. The shit we was wearing was the same that Scott at the Antarctic was issued. I'm not kidding you. I hadn't heard the Russian I'm not kidding you. I hadn't the, heard that story. The, the stuff we was wearing was the same issue that he'd had 100 years ago. Nasty, nasty oil jumpers wrapped in greaseproof paper in cardboard boxes. Even the boots were made of a compressed cardboard. Completely unsuitable for the terrain, the climate. Yet the Argies, yeah, they were under-trained and they were bloody starving off them by the time, you know, the length of time they'd been out there. But best boots, best kit, they were all kitted out by the Russians. Mm-hmm. And the Russians were giving them satellite information. It was only at that point uh, when that could be proved that America then realised, you know, never mind upsetting our southern neighbours. If this, this is Russia playing a little hand, yeah. we've already had this with Vietnam, etc., etc., and Cuba. And so they started giving us satellite information, which they weren't going to do beforehand. 
I thought it would put, it would make an unfair bias. Maybe it was a short war. Six Very, months. It was, it was unsustainable. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that by the end of it, we had completely wiped out their air force. They didn't have any pilots left. I mean, I think... And they were the, a basket case of an economy anyway, which is, yeah. which is to your point about where they got all the gear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And as, as I said, I saw the ship got hot. Um, I wouldn't say mates, mates, people that I knew. And there yeah. was a character, a Marine called Kovacs, that I thought was fucking a great guy. He was always getting into trouble. And every day it's like Marine Kovacs report to the, you know, and it's just, oh, what's he done now? And everything like that. And when they read out, you know, every every day, a load of them would leave in helicopters and go over and come back. And when it was like, he didn't make it back, that was like, mm. The weird thing is, is that once you've gone through that thing where you're going to die, and I mean, there's there's a time, there's a guy I hated, and that guy was Jock Steele, and my action station, when you asked me what did I do, it wasn't just the TV thing. Uh, I was also a diver, I was one of five divers on the, on the Hermes. So you got that, so you got that side of, yeah, for mines, and take readings all the time of prop shafts, poker gauge readings, make sure that the shafts aren't wearing down irregularly, and there, there's a lot of intelligence equipment underneath yeah. the ship you know your sonar and, and also you've got your little electric cathode things which stop uh, marine animals planting themselves on it ducks vents yeah. all things that you need to kind of check and stuff i was an electrical weapons engineer you had 12 different stations and that could be sonar radar ics communications or the tv studio and you was on a three four month rotation but it was the best one to get because it was fun so we do little news skits and stuff like that and that's when i started doing music with a mate ah, of mine okay when we get back to that but there was a guy i couldn't stand a guy called jock Steele, and it so happened my action stations when it went bah, 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 actually you had seven minutes to shut down the whole ship and everything where everything sealed up and no what am i talking about seven minutes yeah, two minutes say, two yeah. minutes no i think seven minutes you'd be dead about two, well, I'm going back what, over 20, yeah. 30 years. Um, <laughs> anyway, it so happened that my action station, tiny little room with a few bits of equipment in it, and mine was with him, of all people. You know, maybe I had action stations, we went to lockdown and be in this little place. And I'm sat there with him. The amount of times where we did it is like, you know, like action station, action station, blah, blah, blah. hit the deck, hit the deck, you know, and you kind of think, fucking hell, it's, you know, etendai, incoming, incoming, and you're on the floor. And there was one particular time. And we're waiting to hear our Harriers take off. It goes incoming. We're going, fucking hell, why aren't you taking off it? Why aren't you taking off it? And it's like that. And we're waiting to hear the thing, you know, because we were up in the island where the office was, which is by the flight deck. And at one particular time, and it said, so-and-so's been hit. So-and-so's been hit. And uh, we've got Super Etendar on radar. We've got Exocets on radar. And it was hit the deck. And I looked at him. And this time, I really thought, fucking, that's it. We've lost our goalkeeper. That's been fucking blown up. Yeah. We've got no defence now. He was out under the table. I was sat in a filing cabinet. <laughs> and we, we, we thought, actually, we were quite safe being up in the island. You know, at least we were away from the armour and everything. So we thought, well, we found out afterwards that there was a secret stash of um, Sidewinder torpedoes that had been appropriate in, in the, the room. Appropriate, right, under, no, right underneath <laughs> us, you know. But I had that really cheesy classic moment. Whereas we looked at each other and thought, any minute now it's going to go kaboom. And, it, and I looked at him and I said, do you know what, Jock? You ain't that bad. And he goes, neither are you. And we shook hands. Mm. It's like, if we, get out of, if we get out of this, we should have a drink and all of that, you know. Wow. Of course, hit the deck, hit the deck, da 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 Then it said, <laughs> Glamorgan's been hit. I think it was Glamorgan. Glamorgan's been hit, and it was like, right, it missed us. It got that one. Fucking hell. And I looked at him, it didn't mean a word about that. No, neither did <laughs> I. I. It, it, it was. It was one of those. But you know you did. <laughs> you know you did. Play your second song of the podcast. 
Second song, second song. Well, uh, this, this is going to sound like it's all on a bit of a, a dad prison theme here. Uh, okay, uh, let the cage birds sing. It's, it's a song we always used to dedicate to Paddy Hill. And it's, it's quite self-explanatory, really, let the cage birds sing. Body of a nun in the fumblings of their union, trying to keep the kingdom come. Bought her a bird in a silver cage for blessed company. Cause he knew one day they're gonna lock the door, they gonna throw away the key. Blow out the candles, moans moving in. Flowers bloom on out the dress now in the cage bird. Government called them terrorists, all the people they called them saints. They lost the plot, they kept them moving, looking for heaven's gate, yeah. Stole a car, they got as far as motel on Damascus Road. The TV screen threw back their dreams as the cathode ray exploded. Blow out the candle, always moving in. Flowers bloom on Alcatraz now, let the cage burn. Cage Bird Sing by Alabama 3. Let's get, finally, I did not expect this uh, chat to go the way it went. I thought I'd be talking to a musician tonight. Talk me through now how you became part of the Alabama 3 and got into music and everything. The Falklands okay. was over, you came home. Okay, well, it was when I was down the Falklands, really. Obviously, you got hours and hours and hours and hours where you're just sat doing bugger all, basically. Just sat in a control room for hours on end on your own. And uh, I was going out with this girl in, uh, in in Little Venice. She was not by blood, but she was kind of more or less Richard Branson's niece. He he lived on a boat, two boats up, and the boat that she lived on with her family, he'd given to them okay. because he was good mates with her mum. You know, they'd lived for years on the canal before he'd made it big. She used to play guitar and harmonica. And so I bought her a Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee record for Christmas, not knowing who the hell they were, but I saw on the cover there's a guy with a harmonica and a guy with a guitar, and, you know, I thought she might like this. And I fell in love with the record myself. She bought them, bought me a harmonica. So, like, hours and hours on board, nothing to do in the middle of the night. I thought, you know, I'd try and teach myself that. And I'd played guitar a little bit as a kid, 
couldn't believe how bloody difficult it was. I didn't know about keys or anything then. Yeah. So, you know, so then I got to learn about keys. Then I met this guy in the Navy who'd, who'd been in a band and he wanted to form a band together. So, because I was doing the TV studio, you know, and we used to film the, the vicar every night and he'd do his day-to-day news, etc., etc. And at the end of it, we used to do a little music thing till we got banned because we did a, an anti-officer song. But then whenever he was on tour in America... We'd set up gigs, me and him. Right. But we got into a lot of trouble. We used to get into a lot of fights, and eventually he got he got kicked out. So that was the end of that. When I came back from the Falklands, so I was living on on the boat in Little Venice, and there was a pub there, and the whole area around there was all famous semi-retired rock stars. Dave Gilmore had a house there, and you know I could go on and on and on. But there was a pub there where they decided that they would start doing music. And so they got all the locals, and I don't even heard of a band called The Pretty Things. They were perceived as the first bad boys of rock, and Phil May, the singer, had the longest hair and rock and roll, right. and it was they were the original lock-up-your-daughters, would-you-want-them-going-out-with-the-pretty-thing kind of thing right. before the Rolling Stones. Okay. But they're all mates, and they even interchanged members at one point. In fact, Dick Taylor, the guitarist of The Pretty Things, um, was originally the bass player of the Rolling Stones, and they were one of... David Bowie's favourite band, which is why on pinups, yes. oh you pretty things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Moving forward, they disbanded and then they got back together in the eighties, just at the time when I came back from the Falklands. So they were playing in this thing. So I joined them then, and the lineup was bloody spectacular. Ian Stewart, who was the original member of the Rolling Stones, who'd got sidelined by Andrew Lou Goldman for not being attractive enough. He ended up being the tour manager, but he was a great, great boogie-woogie pianist, and he's on all the early albums. He was on keyboards. The bass player was a guy called Dave Winter, who had been Neil Sedaka's bass player. Two drummers. One was called Willie the Wall Wilson. He was the guy that Nick Mason's not too good with the old click track from Pink Floyd, so when you're seeing them live, sorry, Nick, but it'd be Willie the Wall behind the wall playing most of the drums. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't have said that. I let a secret out there. <laughs> uh, all you Pink Floyd fans would be pissed off. <laughs> Dave Gilmore was the guitarist. Really? Raph Ravenscroft, the sax player who did... Bah, 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 bah. Joey Raffick's Baker Street. Baker Street, yeah. He was in it. Um, <laughs> the other guitarist was Hugh Lloyd Langton from Hawkwind. And the other drummer was Mike Giles from King Crimson, which was like one of my favourite bands at the time. And he was bonkers. He'd just be playing and then do a completely different shuffle to throw everyone off and think it was funny. But and this band... So there's this super group and me. Yeah. On harmonica, yeah. And, and, and that started the love affair, really. And so I was with them for like nearly two years. And then I got drafted from Naval Intelligence back down the bloody Falklands again. And that's when I saw... Yeah, but it was unfortunate. There's only me and another guy of the rank that I had. I was like only the equivalent of a corporal or something. Um, It it turned out that there was only two people trained up on this particular bit of hush-hush equipment. And he'd done his six months down there. There wasn't anyone to replace him. So I had to go down there, despite the fact I'd been told I'd never go down there again. Um, and that's when I just thought, this is bollocks, you know. I've already wasted eight months down there. I don't want to go down there again. And it was pointless just going round and round and round around this island, particularly though I didn't particularly agree with it by then anyway. And so I came out and went straight to Australia with the guy I had the band with in the Navy, you know, doing the TV stuff. Then he got a really bad drug addiction and I couldn't handle that anymore. So then How I came, were you came and back all to that England. drugs and all that, was it? 
the, the thing was, I mean, back in those days, I was a lunatic speed freak. Um, mm. I guess cocaine, thankfully, has never really doesn't work on me. Sorry, mate, thank yeah. God, you know. I, I think it should only be given to women. <laughs> <laughs> Most of my pals, I'm in the music business, as you know. In fact, the film business, yeah, every yeah. bloody business. business they're, they're, they're all fucking charlied out of their brains. It's part and parcel of it, the stock market, you know, everything. Yeah. And, and then in a room full of people on coke, all you can hear is me, 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 yeah, me. It's correct. pointless. It just makes you drink 10 times more yeah. and you talk, just talk shit. Right. No one's listening. Unless I'm missing something, it just no, doesn't work for me. But I look at some people, I think you've spent your whole career and all your money and everything throwing it all away because that's all you care about. But you're also not... What a, does it do yeah, to you you're, that you're also, it doesn't you're, work for me? You're also, like I can talk for Ireland, you're, you're a raconteur, you can talk and you're confident. And I, I do see a lot of my friends who are maybe shy and who are retiring when they take it they become confident and so that's why it makes them animated and I can see I can see oh yeah, I see why he does it but you know it's not really it's not the real him it's a facade yeah. he puts on whereas I, I prefer to just go I prefer to just go no this is me and I, I'll drink until I keel over but like that's me you know? yeah it's, I it's, mean it's a it, different... yeah I drink too much and, and I like my herb yeah, no, the hard stuff. No, no I'm, I'm, I think, I'm, yeah, fifty six. I think in a, in a couple of months, and I'm just thinking, yeah. And so, like, you, you met this girl with the harmonica and stuff. But did, did you have? Did you marry her, or what, well, what happened? No, no, I didn't. I didn't marry her. No, I've never got married. But I've got I'm kids. With you on that. You have I've kids. Got kids. Yeah, I've got two boys, Otto and Ziggy. Love um, the names. They're very cool, and they were brought up uh, in the Caribbean, um, in Tobago. The mum's dad was from Trinidad. He had a business over there and he bought a lot of land. So we went over and we built some guest houses out there and then the kids were born and they lived out there then basically, well, we weren't particularly getting on. It was a bit of a, a jump for me going back and forth. I didn't like being out there, to be honest. I mean, there's nothing to do. I went mad. I yeah. mean, uh, I just used to sit with the fishermen every night and during the day, I'd either go walking with the kids for miles until they was at school or um, I'd just collect drift driftwood because I had a very busy life back home in, in, in England and I was rotting when I was, I'd was go over there. So then the, how did the Alabama Three then take shape? Um, well, I used to run a nightclub um, called the TARDIS. Uh, it was quite a famous place in Clerkenwell. Was it bigger on the inside? Well, it was, yeah, because... Sorry, no, but, no, but it was. It, 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 <laughs> you may laugh, but, you know, it was. It was about 100 yards long. We had seven levels. The main room, we had 60-foot ceilings with trees. Trees for London did a party there and gave... We said there on the promise that you'd put the trees in. So I've got this nightclub. We've got a party going on, and this guy comes up to me, and it's one of the guys who ran Mojo with Paddy Hill, a guy called John McManus. We gave them an office um, at the TARDIS studios. Because Mojo were doing gigs for Alabama 3, and I wasn't really aware of them, but John McManus was constantly playing them, you know, and I was going, oh, I, can't, I can't stand this band, bloody country sort of thing, you know. And of course, you kept playing it like anything, you get an earworm, don't you? And then you start going, this is all right, kind of thing. So he brought him along, Larry Love, the lead singer. And I was Great chatting name. at the bar. Is that his real like, name? What? No, his real name's yeah. Rob Robert. His real name is David Smith. His real name's Robert Sprague. <laughs> okay, that's and he's not from, bad either. Yeah, but he's from Wales, and a Sprag is a pit prop, which uh, is kind of, yeah, anyway. Not as good. Well, every, everyone in Alabama 3 has a, has a, has a ah, pseudonym. You what's know, yours? A nom de plume. Um, Harpo Strangelove. <laughs> 
you laughing at? It's ridiculous. <laughs> of course it's ridiculous. Alabama 3 is fucking ridiculous. I know, it's great. I love, I love it. <laughs> so anyway, so he's at, he's at the bar and he goes, oh, Santo tells me, you know, you can play harmonica and stuff like that. And, well, I didn't, oh, what I've totally left out, I was in a pop band in the 90s. That's another bloody story. Um, Who are they? Even... Uh, yeah, well, we had we had two top 40 hits and kind of toured yeah. all over the place for a while. They were called Octopus. EMI spent absolute fortunes on us. All ended up in tears. We never delivered. Everyone lost the plot, including, well, mainly our producer. I mean, I could go on. I mean, that's a story in itself, but they cut us loose. I think we're officially known as the band that killed Britpop. Not a know. bad thing. No, not a bad thing. But our point of Alabama 3 is they were a Britpop band as well. But because everyone was waving the Union Jack and kind of nodding to everything that was kind of great about being British. Blur nodding to Ray Davis of the yeah, Kinks and yeah. you got Oasis nodding to the Beatles. Yeah. That's all that great when Brit was fab. Genuflecting. Yes, that's the one. Uh, indeed. <laughs> and Alabama, they were thinking, oh, we can't just go out and do this. So they decided to put on the American persona and all have silly names and all sing and talk with American accents. Really? So much so that today people still think we're well, American. American. Yeah. It was a joke as a kind yeah, of a yeah. piss take at all the people trying to be terribly so British. As we discussed earlier, a joke completely lost when you went to America because they yeah, well, the joke, the joke, it didn't, it didn't wear. Anyway, so, so has said it been to a me, successful venture? Uh, well, uh, as our managers keep telling us, we, we, we instead of complaining all the time, we should be happy and grateful that the fact we haven't had a hit record in years we're still touring still doing all the festivals every year we still put an album out what do you, every feel, year. What do you feel is your big appeal as a band you, uh, you, you have a loyal base though right? yeah because we've been going a long time we've got a very 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 loyal people grow old base. with you as a sense they have done and, and and they introduce their children and their children's children it's kind of like we've <laughs> become father's, a family father's, band father's, father's, yeah, yeah Alabama 3 is just not for Christmas you know right. I, I don't know why there's something infectious about the band I suppose I mean a lot of people like the lyrics which have got nothing to do with me do you love it yeah uh, like you, you, how, how long have you been in this band like? where are we now 2018 18 yeah. years 18 years. Is it a good way to spend 18 years? I'm yeah, I moan and bitch all the bloody yeah. time. But Everyone I, 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 I guess, I, well, that's the problem when it, it becomes a job. Um, I mean, the thing is, we, we, we're lucky that we go out in two formats. We go out as a four piece and as a nine piece. Since I was on the, in the Navy and then ships and was a diver, you wouldn't think I'm claustrophobic. But as I'm getting older, I'm starting to not like people in my space too much. Yeah. But generally, we play smaller venues. That's the point of it, because it's quite, you know, we can only play big venues with nine people. We've got a lot of kit. It's a big, big sound. And so the only way it can be economically viable is that you have to play big venues, and you can't do too many of them a year. So to keep the kind of the faith going, keep the flag waving, we do little small ones. Did you ever nearly break up, or have you had come back together or oh it's a rare it's rare for a band to stay together that long it is it is and i don't know I, what, what do you I, put I, that down to there's something very infectious about our grand leader larry love i think he, he, he's a good shepherd even though i think everyone in the band secretly hates him yeah but that's that's good it, yeah he, he's it's a love hate he, it's a love hate <laughs> so he, to speak. He, he gets away with murder but he's incredibly magnetic i don't know maybe it's the work it's the invested work put in i think generally everyone is actually quite proud of, of what they've done with the music. A lot of people can't believe we're not bigger than what we are. Mm. Uh, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that The Guardian, The Guardian of all people, said we're the best live band um, in England. And we've got, we ha 
you know, at festivals. We'll be going to see you next week. You're, you're touring yeah. at the That's moment. That's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. We're touring. This is Larry's latest mad idea. Well, a couple of years ago, he upset everyone by saying, I've got this concept for a triple album, and it's all going to be based on the Wombles. I, I said, are you kidding? We're supposed to be kind of like hardcore, radical, You're left Aranoco, wing. You're Aranoco, aren't you? You're huh? Aranoco. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> You're Madame Cholet then. Fine. <laughs> the Madame Cholet podcast. Yeah. Now no, 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 polish this. This is the ABC Acid Blues Country album, which we're going to close on a song from it. Yeah, well, well this is Larry's latest idea. I said yeah. he wanted to do a Womble trilogy. And we got as far as the men from Womble, the women from Womble. Then we basically had a mutiny and said, you're not going to... By the way, Womble is an acronym for World of Militant Beat Liberating Executioners. Okay. Because we're underground, man. Yeah. Get it? Yeah, well, that, that was his whole premise. And you're wumbling free. Yeah, that was his whole premise. So he managed to get two hours before he said, no way. So he's so pissed off about this he's obsessed he wants to do his triple album so i think to, to go with this tour it. in a in a climate where, where there's not even so much as a fucking ep you're producing a triple <laughs> yeah. album well, that's, it. What, and that's it's, zagging that it's, is zagging it's the abc of alabama three acid blues country all right we're going to so close the album, yeah we're going to so, close on one of those songs but before you go i want right. to ask you one question and i ask this of everybody and i have no fucking idea what you're going to say to this you have to either talk to the young Nick in his ear or a young kid today who's setting off. What have you learned? What is your wisdom that you want to pass back in a sentence or two sentences or three sentences? Become a lawyer. <laughs> That's possibly the best answer ever. Add to that from the creative people I talked to. Play us out on a song from ABC. Uh, ooh, ooh. Go, oh, okay, but this is very apt just for our sign out. I'm also in the process of doing a documentary on the life story of Brian Jones. It's 50 years ago next year since he was found murdered. Mm -hmm. He was oh, murdered. Really? He was, yes, oh, yes. Is that what the documentary is? Yes, only partly. It's more really about the fact how he's been kind of whitewashed out of uh, you know his importance to rock and roll. Him. Um, I'm not saying. <laughs> I can I'm not say saying. It. Yeah, <laughs> sue me for all the wealth of my podcast. You'll, you'll find the podcast will disappear. <laughs> Mick moves in mysterious ways. I'm not joking, mate. I'm telling you, they're like the mafia. But anyway, uh, before I go missing, and so we've done a song, and it's about everyone knows who killed Brian Jones. I'm just trying to think of the proper title for it because we call it Brian Jones. It's called something else, and we've actually got a really good video with it, which shows Orlando, our keyboard player. Um, as the devil killing all the famous people in rock, including Brian Jones. I'll never be satisfied. I'll never be satisfied. I'll never be satisfied, yeah. On also the blues album. The Brian Jones. Brian song. Jones. And it's got From a great new album. Yeah, and it's a great video as well. By Alabama 3. The video you will find a link to in the blurb of this podcast. This was one of the most extraordinary podcasts I've had on a pint with Shawnee B. Thank you, Nick Reynolds. Well, for sharing your life with me, it has been a blast and a ride. And this is, and we're going to cheers because we are cheers, drinking. Sean. Nice one, mate. Alabama Three, the Brian Jones song. Yeah. People always asking me, "What's the blues?" Well, the blues is when you ain't got no money. The blues is when you're hot stepping out the French windows and you've left your crocodile shoes under another backdoor man's bed. The blues is when you've had enough. You cocky clock, 
declared to God and to the devil. Let the party begin. Everybody blames Billy Hyde and his pill. I was holding her hand and she went limp. Paul ain't you wanna sniff stood a chance. I switched to Stolly for adulterated under the counter brand. Loaded the bullets, killed Cobain's gun. Made damn sure Jim Morrison's bath was hot when it ran. In a grand old Opry on that Saturday night, I got Hank Williams high when he took that last, last drive. I tear. Charlie Neal's in 